0: In the Cold War, lots of American cities were full of fallout shelters. You might pass a doorway and see a dusty black and yellow sign fixed to the wall, signifying that this was a neighbourhood fallout shelter. If the bomb drops, you can duck in here. They weren't fancy nuclear bunkers fitted with blast doors and elaborate air filtration systems. Often they were simply large basements of offices or apartment blocks or government buildings, which had been recognised as offering a bit of space and a bit of protection from the worst of the fallout. The place would be assessed as suitable and a licence issued to the owner, who'd put his little sign on the wall and make sure the interior was stocked with emergency food and water supplies or at least make it available to be stocked with that, if an emergency arose. In this episode, we'll look at the food and supplies kept in readiness in these shelters, focusing on New York City. And we'll go through the archives to see what this food was, and what was done with it when it reached its sell-by date. As you'll guess from the title, most New Yorkers, if they ever found themselves stuffed into one of these public shelters, ...would have been chewing down on crackers through the nuclear holocaust. This is The Atomic Hobo, and I'm Julie McDowell. Now, post-war America was booming. It was rich and flashy, and everyone had white teeth and big cars. At least, that's how we perceive post-war America in the popular imagination. But undoubtedly, it was a wealthy country. So, what's with the crackers, America? When the authorities came to stock those public fallout shelters with food, why weren't they putting in chocolate and Coca-Cola and caviar? They had the money, right? Well, there are several reasons why your public fallout shelter contained bland crackers instead of caviar. The first is space. You're restricted on what you can put in there because your space is, of course, severely limited. You need to cram a terrified and panicking rush of people in there, then heave the door shut and keep them there until the fallout above has decreased to a safe level. We're talking about a fortnight. So things are not going to be comfortable in there. You need to use your space very economically. You also need to have bedding in there. And room to, you know, breathe and move around and perhaps stop people from going mad. You'll also need a bit of space for toilets and medical kit. So there are strict limits on space, which means you cannot stuff the shelves with fancy food. You need things which are easy to stack and store and won't take up too much room. And yes, it has to be energy-giving food. You can't use the food for its lovely taste or its pleasant associations or the wealth and comfort it might symbolise. Coca-Cola and caviar might have a lot of connotations which would be comforting, but they're not going to be as useful down there when your space is limited. So you need food which is easy to stack and store, and which is energy-giving. Of course, it has to be good old carbohydrates. So you want something flat, square, and carby. Yeah, you want crackers. You can also eat crackers without having to cook or prepare them. Finally, dry crackers have a very long shelf life. So you can store them in the fallout shelter, and then forget about them for a while. You're not having to constantly check your stores and turn over with fresh food. As well as storing food and medical supplies, these public fallout shelters would also have contained steel drums of drinkable water. The benefit of bringing water in huge drums is that when these drums have been emptied, you can simply insert a plastic liner and they can be used as toilets. But what if you don't want to spend Armageddon with a bunch of strangers gnawing on crackers? Well, there's a solution. This is America, after all. The land of capitalism and enterprise and money. So, build your own shelter. Then you won't need to share it. And you can stock it with whatever you like. Forget the crackers, you can pile it high with bubblegum and hot dogs. In the early 1960s, mainly galvanised by the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy encouraged Americans to build their own fallout shelter in the back garden or beneath the house and a shelter craze ensued. See my previous episode called Shoot Thy Neighbour if you want to look at the uglier side of the shelter craze such as when some people began to ponder what they'd do if friends or neighbours knocked on the door and asked to be let in. But if you didn't have a private shelter in the back garden, you might find yourself in one of these public shelters in the city. If so, you'd be locked in there for about a fortnight. What would you have been eating? I have here some government papers from Britain from 1966. This was when Britain was still toying with the idea of building communal public shelters as America had. This was an idea, though, that Britain never put into practice, but just couldn't help playing with. So strong was our hangover from the Blitz. So the civil servants looked at the American arrangements for communal public shelters and wondered whether it would work in Britain. And I have papers here which say the calorie provision for Americans in public shelters would be 10,000 per person for those 14 days. Of course, if we divide 10,000 calories by 14 days, we get just over 700 calories a day. That is very, very low. Bear in mind that the normal recommended calorie intake currently for an adult male is 2,500. So you'd be diving from 2,500 to 700 calories. On the bright side, though, the paper does stress that shelter occupants would be inactive. You can say that again. So they wouldn't be using up a lot of energy. And even if they wanted to, could you happily consume 2,500 calories made up of dry crackers? It would be quite a slog. Of course, you wouldn't just be eating crackers. Alongside the crackers, there would be stalks of sugar cubes. So that would help alleviate any horrible dryness in the mouth, as well as giving you a sugar boost. American shelters would have been stocked with sugar cubes, but in Britain we toyed with the idea of stocking our shelters with boiled sweets instead. Same purpose, of course, is to give you a sugar hit and um, alleviate dryness in the mouth. But um, rather touchingly, the civil servants in Britain worried that if people were constantly sucking on boiled sweets in the shelter, it might give them mouth sores. So the Americans went instead for sugar cubes, which I suppose you could sit on the tongue and they would dissolve. Some shelters, of course, did stock uh, what they call in America candy, of course, hard candy, but often it was sugar cubes. The papers here, the British civil servant um, papers from 1966, also point out that shelter occupants, given enough warning, of course, and preparation and cool heads, might even bring some supplies of their own to this public fallout shelter. That's assuming you've not been caught out in the open with just a four-minute warning and you dash to the nearest shelter. If there is sufficient warning and you are super organised, you could head to the shelter with a packed lunch tucked under your arm. So instead of people hunched over their flat, scratchy, miserable bedding, gnawing on crackers, we could have families hunkering down with some sandwiches and slices of Madeira cake and little bottles of lemonade. How nice. The dry, miserable crackers stocked in America's fallout shelters or stocked in warehouses ready to be distributed in times of emergency were supposed to last about 10 years. This means there'd be no constant and time-consuming turnover of goods. You weren't having to send guys out to the shelters and warehouses every couple of months to throw out millions of crackers and restock with nice fresh ones. In May 1961, it was reported that the state of New York had stockpiled 14,000 pounds of crackers in the basement of the state capitol in Albany, intended to feed any government workers in the building when the sirens began to wail. These crackers were specially made survival crackers, which had been created. By the State Health Department and the National Biscuit Company, done at the request of the Civil Defence authorities. The Governor said 100 of these crackers per day would provide a balanced diet. The New York Times had this to say on the massive New York cracker stockpile. The only beverage needed with the crackers is water, but the Civil Defence Commission have also laid in some coffee, tea, non-fat milk, and sugar, quote, primarily for morale purposes. The supplies, the crackers, sugar cubes, drums of water, etc. were all kept in storage, either in the shelters themselves or in warehouses and specially appointed secure locations. One such secure storage room was on the 43rd floor of New York's Waldorf Astoria Hotel. There were enough crackers and sugar in that one room to feed 7,500 people for a fortnight. Also, five basement areas in the huge Chase Manhattan Bank on New York City's Liberty Street were also used as cracker storage. With enough stored beneath the bank ...to feed 15,000 people. Interestingly, the bank's supplies of crackers were obtained privately. This is America, after all, and they weren't willing to sit back and wait... ...or hope for government supplies to reach them in a time of crisis. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, the bank executives were told... ...it might take three weeks to get their allocated government supplies... So instead, they spent $49,000 on buying their own supplies, ensuring they had enough to feed their 13,000 employees. You'll know from watching the classic Twilight Zone episode, time enough at last, that a bank vault in New York is a good place to hide when the bomb drops. If you want to survive, that is. And of course the whole idea of the rich bank executives buying private survival rations as opposed to waiting for the government issue stuff reminds us of the whole debate of socialism v. capitalism, a debate which of course goes to the heart of the ideological divide of the Cold War. Socialists might say, well you pay your taxes don't you? So it's only right that the government provides the shelter provisions. Let the government take care of you in this time of crisis. Whereas the capitalists are saying yeah, nuts to that, we've got money and we're going to go it alone. We're going to get ourselves a little something fancy while we're at it. Therefore, those who received government supplies got dry crackers. Whereas the employees of Chase Manhattan Bank would have had something a bit more luxurious in their shelter. Here's what the New York Times had to say in 1963 about this. The emergency food that Chase Manhattan bought last fall comes from Norway and is packed in containers the size of a brick. It comes in banana, chocolate and basic wheat flavours. The federal food supply is a biscuit resembling graham crackers in appearance and taste. So there you have it. Dry crackers versus capitalist banana and chalky fallout treats. (laughs) When we entered the 1970s the fallout shelter craze was dying down a bit. The Cold War entered its period of detente and people relaxed slightly. Mm. So what happened to all those fallout shelters? And all those crackers? Across New York City janitors and maintenance men and landlords who'd agreed to accommodate a fallout shelter in their building grumbled that The inspectors no longer popped by, no one seemed to be checking up, and the food was being left to rot. And Mr. Kasparian told the New York Times in 1976 that he called a charity who came and collected his boxes of crackers and sent them off to needy countries. And Mr. Lorenko, a building supervisor, remembered men arriving at regular intervals to replace and replenish old stocks. But then they just stopped coming. Their last visit, he says, was in 1968, when they visited his apartment block in Riverdale on Hudson Manor Terrace in the Bronx. Then he just never saw them again. And so, in 1995, he finally shrugged and decided to throw it all out. He was prodded into doing so by, what else, a complaint from a tenant in the building. So he went down to the basement and cleared it out. Made some space by throwing out all those boxes of nuclear survival crackers and drums of water. He also mentions having to get rid of supplies of penicillin, nose drops, and the sedative phenobarbital. The New York Times reported from the shelter in February 1995 and said Before Mr. Lorenko threw out metal bins stocked with crackers and jars full of candy, one of his helpers could not resist unwrapping a red candy, a carbohydrate supplement meant to suppress appetite. It tasted like regular candy. I sucked on it and then I bit it, reported Elvis Caban, 20. Mr Caban was then unable to finish the Chinese food he ordered later for lunch. Like the building supervisor we mentioned earlier, Mr Lorenko gave his supplies away to charity. Those which, of course, were still edible and safe to use. Some of the medicines went to developing countries, and his crackers went to Pakistan. So we find a good use for our nuclear crackers when they're redundant, but still edible. But what do you do with those gazillions of crackers when they're so old, so past their use-by date, that they're no longer fit for human consumption? Again, we look at the New York Times, who reported on this matter in February 1979. They said, Survival rations stocked in thousands of New York City fallout shelters more than a decade ago are now considered a hazard because the high-nutrition crackers that were the mainstay of the emergency food menu have turned rancid and could cause illness in humans who happen to eat them. So... Those dangerous crackers had to be disposed of. But one problem was that the authorities didn't know where they were. There were about 10,000 shelters across New York City, but lists of their locations were either lost or hopelessly out of date, with some buildings having been demolished or abandoned. So New York threw the problem open to business and accepted offers from companies to... Hunt down and destroy those bunker dwelling crackers. The businessman who won the cracker contract from the city was a farmer from upstate New York whose business plan was to seek out the hidden crackers and pay the city one dollar for every tonne of material he found. He'd then be free to do as he liked with it. The paper said he intended to use the crackers as feed for his cows. There must be easier ways to get cow feed. The paper, several months later, reported on his efforts to hunt down and clear out the crackers. He seems to have gone into partnership with a Mr Jack Jordan who, according to the New York Times, was supervising a group of young men who were tasked with clearing out New York shelters. It's a nightmare, he said. This stuff should have been taken out years ago. Mr Jordan told the paper that he intended to turn this scheme into an anti-poverty programme, employing young lads to clear out the crackers that he'd found through a Harlem Youth Project. However, after being at the task for four months, they'd only cleared out a few shelters and were starting to doubt whether they could actually complete the task. Mr Jordan, with his Harlem Youth Programme, paid the young men $3 an hour to shift... Seven and a half tonnes of crackers from a shelter up from the basement onto trucks and then out to New Jersey where they'd be delivered to International Bakerage. Once they arrived at the plant in New Jersey, nuclear crackers would be ground up with bakery waste to produce animal feed. Crackers might seem like a strange topic for a Nuclear War podcast episode, But that's how I decided upon last week's topic, which was the use of telephones in nuclear war. It's simply that when I'm reading through books, documents, older archive papers, crackers pop up quite a lot when we're discussing shelter provisions, shelter food. And it's the same with telephones, they pop up quite a lot because of course, after a nuclear war, if you're trying to rebuild society or hold together some form of government, you need communications and so you need your telephones working. So, telephones and crackers are both very important in nuclear war planning. You might have heard me on Radio 5 Live yesterday. That was Saturday the 24th. Uh, Jeff Lloyd kindly invited me on his show to talk about the podcast. So let me say hello to all the new subscribers who've joined me since hearing me on Jeff's show yesterday. Thank you everyone who's come here after listening to Jeff. And thank you, of course, to everyone else who... Those brave, intrepid souls who've found their way here alone. I'm very glad to everyone who subscribes and supports the podcast. A special hello to Sally Everett Brick, who signed up to my Patreon account yesterday. Thank you, Sally. I will be sending out your um, gifts, your nuclear gifts, on Monday. Remember, if you want to support the podcast through a donation each month, you can go to my Patreon site, go to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo, and you can support the podcast there. Remember if you want to reach me on Twitter I'm at Julie A. McDowell and you can get me on Facebook under the page Nuclear Britain or through my website juliemcdowell.com But before we go now let me say thank you to all my other patrons Special thanks to Sally of course, also Tom Allen Paul Jonathan Viner, everybody Hack Green, Secret Nuclear Bunker Dan Breen, Gary Watson Arika, Lucy Stegerwald Ben Taylor, Jonathan Abelins Simon Robinson Heather Parker Peter Mars Bruce Fraser-Armstrong John Haynes Tom Stickland Yannick Sam Marco, Dave Marks Alan Christie Helen McHale Douglas Greenshields Colin McGee Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw Damian Ryan Peter Lee Emma Nystrom Ben Grabham Ed Freshwater Rosie Jamieson, Andrew Key Ian Elkin Lorraine Gluick Ennin Coyle Sarah Brassington Nick Packham Tara Moore, Simon Reid, Lynette Walsh, Christopher Creva, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Woolnuff, Kevin Butcher, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell-Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, Claire Brennan, and Gordon McNair. And if you like the music on the podcast, it's from X. Find them on Twitter at XBandUK.